Why don't we stand and read together? Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, he who is true, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one can shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause their, those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, welcome to our sixth church in the series of seven, where next week will be the completion of the seven churches, and then we're into the heart of the book. But today we're looking at Philadelphia, and one of the similarities that this uh, letter has to the book in Smyrna is it's only one of two churches who receives no word of rebuke. There's no concerns uh, from the Lord to this church. And that's a unique thing because in the seven churches, like I said, five receive uh, rebukes, but Smyrna and these guys don't. Now, it's interesting that in both churches, they were under persecution and both had remained faithful and loyal in the midst of it and remained obedient to his word and never denied his name. Denying his name, of course, would have made life a lot easier in terms of their earthly circumstances, but they chose to remain loyal. Now, it's an important message for us as a church today, as Christianity continues to be marginalized in society. We can learn a lot from Philadelphia because as, as we get marginalized, we may be faced into similar situations, and we are, we're already are facing situations like they were in many ways. So as per usual, we are going to follow our format. And for those of you who are new, every church that I've done, I go through these as our, as our outline. We look at the church in the city. We look at the correspondent. We look at the commendation, words of praise, the words of concern, which today there will be none, um, the command that he gives in response to the concerns he has, and the call to conquer, the last verse of every letter. I will say this as a word of uh, introduction as well. Uh, it's funny, uh, a lot of the commentators said uh, previously that the hardest church for them to interpret was Pergamum. The whole thing about, uh, oh, that's not true, Thyatira, because it had to do with, like, you know, uh, Jezebel and so on and so forth. For me, this has been the hardest one to interpret um, of all the letters. Um, yeah, there was lots of, I think it says this, but I think it says that. Lots of conversations with uh, Dan and Pine Ridge and different people and, uh, and, um, lots of reading and it's really interesting how none of the people i listen to or, or, or respect and sort of theology agreed on any verse <laughs> there was no consensus and so when i come to you today i have worked through everything that i could think possible 
the arguments on either side. I have to obviously present it in a particular way because that's my job. But if you have disagreements with me, no problem. We can talk about it in the dialogue. But I am responsible for delivering the truth as the way the Lord has directed me. And so we'll do that this morning. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm trying to stick to the big principles and not look for the little details in today's message because there's so many unknowns to this message that only made sense in that context if you were part of that church. So I don't like being in that position. I hate it, actually. I love coming to the pulpit very confident in what the Lord has to say, and uh, I do not like the position I'm in this morning, but uh, it is what it is. So Revelation is the hardest book in the Bible to understand, and so I'm, uh, we're all facing that this morning in terms of going forward. Okay, so with that all being said, uh, let's go on. So let's look at the church in the city. Uh, you'll see here that uh, Philadelphia is the, on the bottom right-hand corner of this map in Asia Minor, a modern-day Turkey, and um, uh, pretty close to Sardis and whatnot. But today, uh, Philadelphia is known as the modern city uh, of Al-Azahir. And the population actually is not that much bigger than Okotoks. In Al-Azahir, there's uh, 47,000 people. And so we're at 32.5, they're at 47. So it's not a very big city, and that's about the size of it. That's what it looks like from an overhead view. And you can see uh, the uniqueness of all the buildings being in the same color in terms of the roofing and whatnot. It's not a... Architectural designs are very stringent in that city, it looks like. They're all pretty similar. But uh, yeah, that's what it looks like now, 47,000 people. And uh, in terms of the history of the city and the establishment of the church, again, we have to go to outside resources, outside the Bible, because we receive no information as to their foundings and whatnot. And so uh, I want to point out two historical things that I think are important in uh, Philadelphia's um, establishment that are probably, uh, uh, probably related to why Jesus uses some of the terminology he does to the church here in terms of the things he says to them. But let's first talk about how Philadelphia got its name. Uh, we know Philadelphia in the, in the USA is known as the city of the brother, brotherly love, because Philadelphia means brotherly love or the city of brotherly love. But what we may not know is how it actually came to get its name. So uh, Philadelphia was founded sometime in around 189 BC, uh, around there and afterwards. And it came through the efforts really of two brothers. Um, there was a king in Pergamum uh, who named Eumenes II. And he wanted to establish another outpost for trade and whatnot. And so he sent his brother Attalus II to establish Philadelphia. Of course, it didn't have its name Philadelphia yet, but they picked that area out, and he sent his brother to establish it. Well, his brother, Italus, was nicknamed Philadelphos. That was his nickname. So everyone calls me Dex, you know, that's my nickname. Well, um, his name was Philadelphos because he was really loyal to his brother. King Unanimous Unanimi, King gave him that nickname because of loyalty, and he was just fiercely loyal to him, and so he named him Philadelphos, one called Who Loves His Brother. So when Natalis founded the city, they named it after him and call it Philadelphia, all right? So that's how it gets its name. And so uh, there's many cities actually in the world still called Philadelphia outside of just the USA. But what happened uh, that was significant in his history as well was a natural disaster that experienced in AD 17. And remember last week I told you about Sardis. Sardis experienced an earthquake in AD 17. Well, that same earthquake hit Philadelphia, and it was devastating to the city. It actually destroyed huge parts of it. And a couple key events happened furthering the earthquake. 
First of all, Philadelphia continued to experience earthly tremors and aftershocks, and it caused many to leave the city to go into escape in the countryside to become farmers. And the primary industry there was um, <clears throat> vineyards because of the volcanic uh, soil that was around the area. And so for those who stayed in the city, though, uh, they obviously decreased the population by people fleeing to go elsewhere. But by those who stayed, they were constantly doing repairs to the infrastructure. And so the Greek historian Strabo said this, and I quote, the walls never cease being cracked and different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. <clears throat> and that was the sort of the state if you were a citizen there. Now, this is, I can't prove it, but I'm suggesting this. This is probably why Jesus, in, in referencing to, to them in verse uh, 13 or 12, talks about them being a pillar in the temple. Being a pillar in the temple. He's referring to them having this sort of solid foundation being structured and having this like super supportive uh, position in heaven, probably in relation to what happened in terms of the constant aftershocks and the constant infrastructure damage in the city. But another thing that happened as a result was that Emperor Tiberius at the time waived taxes for the cities for five years as a way of trying to help them gain, uh, get an up, upper leg on uh, the financial loss. So with the Roman Empire reducing your tax or removing your taxes for five years, you now can get yourself a chance to get economically back into position. But out of gratitude, the Philadelphia changed its name to Nero, Neo Caesarea basically after the emperor. And so, again, this is important because they changed their name from Philadelphia to Neo-Caesarea in honor of the emperor, but eventually that name got changed back to Philadelphia because it wasn't popular with the local residents. Now, here's what's important. Jesus also says in verse 12, I'm going to give you a new name. And he mentions that three times. So just kind of cool historical things Again, probably as to why the Lord is using the language he is in his, in, his, in his letter to the Philadelphians. Okay, let's get into the text. The correspondent. Look at um, verse 7 with me. <clears throat> He's, Jesus says this, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. <clears throat> The first thing we need to point out here is the way he introduces himself, because up to this point, we've seen a pattern. In every pattern of, the, of his opening corresponding words, Jesus has actually taken a, some of the attributes from the vision in chapter 1, verse 12, and applied it to himself. So he, he for example, would have said to the uh, church in Pergamum, um, the one who holds a two-edged sword says this. Well, in the vision in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, that John receives, he talks about himself having a two-edged sword. And so other churches, he talks about having bronze feet and, and so on and so forth. And so what we have here is like Jesus borrowing language from that original vision. Well, in this particular situation, none of these images <clears throat> here come from the opening revelation. None of these come from Revelation, or the opening image of the vision. They're all outside the vision. However, they are, are all rooted in the Old Testament and have something to say. So this idea of him being holy and true was a title used only for God. He who is holy and he who is true is an Old Testament description of who the Lord is. Twenty times in Isaiah alone, the Lord is introduced as the Holy One of Israel. 
In Isaiah 6, the most famous passage, he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. So God is known as being holy and true. Now this idea of being true is an attribute given to God five times in Revelation alone. You can write in your margin, Revelation 6.10. Revelation 6.10, because here uh, the attributes of holiness and truthfulness are put together in one verse. I'll read it to you. It says, they called out in a loud voice. This is the angels. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Actually, that's, not the, that's the martyrs, not the, the angels. But the point is, is that, again, holy, holiness and truthfulness are attributed to God. And what is Jesus saying? He who is holy and true declares this. What's the important part about that is that he's implying that he's deity. By, making, by saying that he's holy and true, he's saying, I am God. <laughs> I am the sovereign one of this world. But then he also says that he's the, uh, the key, he has the keys of David that can open a door that no one can shut and so forth. First of all, we need to look at what it means to have the keys of David. Um, in 2 Samuel 7, uh, God came to King David and made a covenant with him. And he said this, basically, in my words, uh, David, I'm going to promise that the Messiah of Israel is going to come from your bloodline, come from your lineage, and he's going to have a kingdom that will endure forever. So you earthly kings will come and go, but there's going to come day a ruler from your bloodline that's going to have a kingdom that's eternal and never, and never fade away. And his rulership will be forever as well. It'll be internal, eternal in nature. So when he says, therefore, that he has the keys of David, Jesus is saying this, I'm actually the fulfillment of that uh, David, Davidic covenant. And if you have the key to something, you have control or authority. So Jesus is saying, as the one who holds the keys of David, I actually have the keys to eternity. I, I'm the one who grants access to eternal life. But this phrase about uh, having a door that no one can shut and open is really cool. This actually comes from Isaiah 22, 22. And we need to read this together. <clears throat> this is really neat. Uh, he says, Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority. He will come become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in the firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So what's happening here in context, there's a guy named Shebna. He's in control of the house of David, access to the royal palace. He's a bit of a doofus, and so God says to Isaiah, I'm taking his place with this new guy named Eliakim. He's going to take the keys to the house of David, entrance into the royal palace, which means you have access into the king's presence. You have access into the kingdom's, into the king, king's palace and into the king's presence. And this guy, Eliakim, was going to hold that, and so therefore he has the keys of David. And so Jesus takes this prophecy and applies it to himself as the person who actually fulfills the ultimate kingdom coming from David and the lineage. He says, I'm actually the one that has the keys to the royal palace in the heavenly sense. And I'm the one that has a key that no one can open and shut. And so basically God's plan of salvation is is put into place by the Lord. He decides who receives eternal life and who doesn't, and he decides who gets in and who doesn't. 
And so this is really, really cool how the Lord introduces himself to the church here. So I am God, and I decide how, how this works and who gets in to eternity. So then he says in the uh, commendation three things. So let's look at that in verse 8 through 10. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So as you can see, we have three distinct promises here. And so we're going to look at them all individually. And the first one's found in verse 8. There's a promise there, he says, of an open door that no one was going to be able to basically open or shut. So there's two possibilities here for this. Um, The word open door in the New Testament scriptures often refers to this idea of an opportunity to spread the gospel. An open door relates to evangelism. So let's look at a couple places. Um, Colossians 4.3, pray for us, Paul says, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul also says, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, I found that the Lord had opened a door for me. So one possibility of this open door is that God has provided for Philadelphia this opportunity for an evangelistic outreach, this ability to preach the gospel in a way that hasn't been there before, and so no one's going to be able to close that on them. Like once the Lord opens that, they're just going to go forward. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that it actually refers to, the again, the open door to salvation. He's opened a door to eternity that no one can shut. That would make sense probably a lot considering the context because the open door in his corresponding opening words is about entrance into the kingdom. So probably, therefore, um, a a good suggestion would be that in continuation of that theme, the open door is, I've opened a door to eternity, I've opened a door to salvation that no one can shut, and so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> I've gone back and forth as to which one I think is the real answer, but probably I'm going to land on the second one. It's a, a reference to him having that continued theme that it's an open door to eternal life that he holds the keys to. But again, you can push back in dialogue and I'll just say, I hear your points. Good job. <laughs> All right. So that's the, that's the, so again, the, the, the second option is not mission, but entrance into the kingdom. Okay. But I want you to notice, most importantly, the reasons for why there's an open door. Why is there an open door? NASB does the best, trans, best understanding of the translation here. Uh, other Bibles, unfortunately, I feel fall short in this. He says, because. I've placed before you an open door that no one shut, because you have little power, you have been obedient to my word, and not denied my name. So there's a reward because of faithfulness in these three areas. Now, the fir- I'll do the last two first, because they're the easiest. The fact that he's um, obeyed their word means that these, Jew- uh, these uh, Philadelphian Christians, in the midst of hardships within the, within the Roman Empire and within the Jewish population that's there, have continued to walk in obedience to him. No matter what hardships they face, they've walked in obedience to him. Secondly, 
uh, they've not denied his name. Again, we've studied for the last uh, five churches before how there'd be pressures to deny the Lord for economic reasons, for, you know, um, for, for physical safety reasons and so on. But they've remained faithful and true no matter what. But the one that interests me probably the most is this idea of little power. This little power. What does that mean? Well, again, back and forth on this for, for a long time, even last night. So it's hard to know because Jesus doesn't actually tell us. But I will say this, and this is without, without denial, uh, a true statement. It's not a negative comment about their weakness. There's no words of concern in this. In other words, Genesis House, little power is something that you could strive for, and God would go, check mark, you're loyal to me. Right? Because he says, I'm going to give you this open door because you have little power. So it's favorable in the Lord's sight. It's not, you're not to strive for bigger power. Little power is going to give you that open door opportunity, that entrance into the kingdom or this opportunity to witness. So the cool thing is it's positive. It's positive. So it's not a, not a negative comment about their weakness, but a positive comment about its strength. About its strength. Now, Interestingly enough, this word power is used in Acts chapter 1 in verse 8. That should ring a bell for the, all of us in that study. Jesus said to the disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's a, the, the same word as dynamos in Greek. You know, it's this idea of being empowered by the Spirit. So you have power. So how does the little fit in? Well, I think what he's saying is this. You church in Philadelphia, you're, you're a small little congregation. You're small in numbers, but you've had a powerful impact in terms of your testimony to the city. I mean, you haven't denied my name. You've been obedient to my word. It may not have led to like a huge church in terms of conversion, but you've had a testimony to who I am. So in other words, this, there was spiritual power that flowed from the small congregation and, and believers there. Now, this is really neat in terms of timing. It's cool how the Lord works things together um, in terms of like preparation. But, you know, I, you know I, I've talked a lot about this sort of street ministry and whatnot, and, and I've t referred to the church in Ireland. I had another conversation with one of the founders who uh, in that early ministry and uh, he talked about the situation uh, where he went on the streets uh, with one guy from the church. And a witch, practicing witch in the community, walked up to uh, Mark and John and said, you Christians are so naive. And Mark says, like, explain. Like, what do you mean by that? She goes, I spend my life putting curses on people in this town. And you walk in here and undo them just like that. And I was thinking, what does he mean by the naive part? And I clued in. She's saying this, you, you Christians are so naive in that you don't realize how much authority you have in Christ. You don't realize how much power you have in Christ, how much light you bring to the darkness, that you can walk in here and in a prayer undo all the curses that I've put on people. Isn't that powerful? It's so cool. You like you don't. Yeah, a witch had to tell a Christian how powerful they were because she recognized in her own life from interacting with them that they just walk in defeat and walk in this idea that they got nothing. 
But the Lord and his Holy Spirit is incredibly powerful and it can undo curses of a witch that she spent her lifetime putting on the city. I think that's what he's saying here. Church, like, I've opened a door to eternal life because you're little in power, but you, you don't know, realize how much of an influence and testimony you are. Pretty cool encouragement to us. Genesis House, you're little in power. There's not a thousand people sitting in these uh, pews. You know, our biggest service I think we ever had is 72. <laughs> and the only reason I know that is because Roger counts once in a while to help me out. Uh, so 70 people is the biggest we've had in nine years. But the Lord can look at us and say, Genesis House, I've got an open door for you, even though you are little in power. The second thing he promises them is vindication for mistreatment. Look at verse 9. He says, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. We have to first say that um, we've seen this uh, comment before. He made that comment to the church in Smyrna in chapter 2.9. He says, you've also been affected by the synagogue of Satan and you're being slandered by them. Here he does here it's in speech again. Uh, he calls it lying against the Christians, not slandering them, but it implies the same thing. But let's just say this, because of the, the Jewish Holocaust and all the atrocities with anti-Semitism, this is not Jesus making an anti-Semitic claim here. He's not, he's not against the Jewish people because Jesus himself was a Jew. <laughs> it's not a racial issue. When he calls him a synagogue of Satan, it's a spiritual one. And we see this all through the New Testament, right? An argument, who are truly the people of God? Who are truly those connected to God? That's why we see Stephen and Acts being killed by the Jewish people because he was making a declaration against them that although they're Jewish and racial lineage, they weren't in terms of their love for Christ and the acceptance of Jesus Christ. And so Stephen was killed because of that. All the apostles were basically killed because of that. And we see people like James and so on martyred as well. But we, get the, but we understand that this is not an antagonism towards Jewish people in terms of race or ethnicity, but in terms of because of the way they've been treating the Christians in, in Philadelphia. Clearly, the Christians there have received hostile treatment, and the Jewish synagogue has closed their doors. So God's opened a door in one sense to the Philadelphian Christians, but the synagogue have closed theirs to them. And they're basically saying, we're disassociating from you as believers. And the irony there, again, is because these are supposed to be God's people who are actually rejecting God's people. And this is clear, I think, from the, the comment that I will make them fall at their feet. So he's going to promise a vindication for those Jews who've missed, or the Christians who've been mistreated. Because he borrows this uh, fall at the feet statement from Isaiah 45 and 14. And the context of this is incredible. I'll read this to you. He says, this is what the Lord says, the, produ the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and will be yours. Now he's speaking to Israel. They will be yours. They will trudge behind you coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you saying, surely God is with you and there's no other, there's no other God. Now what's incredible is this, the Lord or through Isaiah is making a prophecy to Israel that the, and the, the Gentile nations are going to come to a place one day where they recognize the Jewish people are truly God's people, and they're not going to worship Israel. Because of what God does in their nation, 
they're going to go, oh my goodness, you worship the true God. We want to be connected to him. We've got it wrong. Now, here's the irony. This is a promise to Israel. And what's Jesus doing in this text? He's actually flipping it on them. He's saying these Jews are actually from a synagogue of Satan. I'm applying this, what's going to happen here, to the Christians in Philadelphia. So it's kind of like a pretty strong slap in the face uh, to the, the Jewish synagogue there. Now, the tensions, of course, between these two were obvious uh, through the New Testament, but there, really it came down to a few things. The Jewish community always, had, was a, in many ways, was antagonistic to the court, towards the Christian people because they, they saw them as perverting the means of salvation. Because in the Jewish faith, it was, you had to observe the law of Moses to be right with God. And so there was debates over what day to worship, like on the Sabbath, whether you should be circumcised, and so on. And so there was a lot of dissension against them for, quote-unquote, being anti-lawbreakers. Uh, there was controversy over food and diet. But one of the biggest ones is a declaration of the Christians that, that, that the Messiah was crucified. Because in the Jewish mindset, it said in Deuteronomy, that only those who were hung on a tree uh, and died that way were cursed by God. And so they couldn't figure out how they were worshiping this man, this Messiah, that they believed was cursed by God, and they were declaring him to be God himself. And so there was a huge amount of tension between them in those ways. And of course, it resulted in hostility towards them. Here, there, were, there was uh, obviously some slander and some lying going on about the Christian people there. I did a much more thorough job in explaining some of the background to that in my church, to the church in Smyrna. So if you'd like to know more about the Jewish-Christian relationship, you can listen to that sermon. But despite their rejection, though, Jesus promised to vindicate them. He promised to vindicate them. Now the question is, when was he going to do that? <laughs> was he saying he was going to vindicate them in that lifetime? <clears throat> Were the Jewish people going to you know, come and say, yeah, we recognize you as God's people? Or was it going to come in the end times, sort of at the judgment of, of, uh, of the nations? Um, depending who you read and depending who you listen to, um, you're going to get different answers. Um, you know, here's the main point I want to say to this, though. What's important here is that there are times where the Lord may bring vindication in this lifetime, but there are also times where he, we may have to wait for it. So he will vindicate and he will uh, judge those who've mistreated us as believers. We just don't always know the timing. But he will do it, but we have to sometimes wait. And that's really hard for us, right, in the waiting. We always want justice, and we want it to happen in our, in our timing. But there are times we have to wait. And so um, one of the, the key verses is actually in Romans. In Romans. In Romans twelve nineteen, it says this, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. So for those who believe that the vindication was going to come in that lifetime, then obviously the Lord would have taken, somehow made this possible. For those who have an eschatological view of this, like an end times view of this, we know that the Lord eventually will take revenge. But as believers, it's important for us to remember this, right? It's not wrong to want justice. It's not even wrong to hope for justice. And there are times when you can even pursue justice. 
But what we have to be prepared for is if we don't get it in this lifetime, not to take revenge. Wait for the Lord and his timing to bring that about. Whether it's in this lifetime or the next, he will repay. He sees everything you're doing, everything you're going through. He's keeping books, it says, about the deeds of people. He will pay back. And we have to trust him with his timing. But another thing we learn here then is as, as Christians, then, we need to be ready for and even expect to be rejected because of our connection to him. I mean, if they're put in situations where they're asked to deny his name or be disobedient to his word or basically like, you know, uh, compromise because of the slander and the lying of the Jewish people, uh, the Jewish synagogues towards them, there's a lot of opportunity there for compromise. And but they hadn't. But it's also um, a really good lesson for us to remember that, you know, we can be expected to be persecuted and rejected because of our connection to him. Jesus himself said in John, do not be surprised if the world hates you because it hated me first. The reason why we're hated is because of our connection to him, not because of anything in and of ourselves. But one other lesson I think from here is that some of the most intense persecution might actually come from people who claim to know God. In this context, there's a lot of hatred from the Jewish synagogue, the God's people. And so here, you know, don't be surprised if, you know, we're doing ministry in the community and it's so supposedly from uh, other religious organizations that we actually face a lot of our animosity as to be expected. The third, the third thing he promises and probably the most controversial verse to understand is this next one in verse 10. He says, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is a very baffling verse and causes a lot of interesting debate. Um, And no one that I've listened to or read really agrees on everything here. Uh, Many believe that this is a a reference to the sort of final tribulation that the world's going to face in the end. Uh, Many believe there's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation in which there's an antichrist figure that comes to reign, and uh, this is God's promise to rescue the church out of that. Uh, Others believe that this is some future event that they were about to experience that was going to be unleashed by the Roman Empire. Um, My belief in this is it's a future event that was going to be experienced in their lifetime. And I'm not going to get into the debate now. Uh, I will, if you want to know about that, we can talk about it in the dialogue because I could open up a, a huge uh, thing right now that I don't want to open up. But uh, yeah, I will be talking about this more in future sermons. So yeah, I do believe this is a future event that he, they are going to face because contextually so far in every church, he speaks to their situation first about things they're facing in their day. Everything in Revelation so far in the first five churches has been what? Contextual to their environment, people they're encountering, situations they're facing. Then once we get the lessons, we apply it to us as a church 2,000 years later. He must mean that they, therefore, are going to go through something in their lifetime that they're going to experience, that they're going to be relieved from. It has to make sense in their context first before we apply it to ours. And so that's why I would strongly suggest that this is um, something that the the Roman Empire is going to unleash on the world at that point. But here's what's really cool about this, is that they're going to be rewarded because of their loyalty to the Lord. 
You notice that in verse 10, he says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep, from, keep you from this testing. So there's a correlation. The reason why you're not going to face this trial is because you've been obedient to me as, as followers of Jesus Christ. It's a direct correlation. Your obedience means that I've seen it, and as a result, you're not going to face what other people are going to face in the Roman Empire. I'm going to alleviate you from that. And that's pretty amazing to think about. Because that means that when we walk in obedience to him, there are times when the Lord may protect us from undergoing major trials. And you know what? This is, I just learned something new this week. I mean, I've been a Christian for probably like 16 years, 17 years. I don't know, something around there. And I just learned something new in my studies this week. And I'll show you this in just a second. But this idea of going, undergoing major trials and being protected, we can even pray for that. The Lord says that we can pray to be alleviated from trials. So watch this. This is where, I, this is where my learning. I didn't realize that lead us not into temptation. That word temptation is actually trial. It's, he's not saying this, don't lead me into temptation, like in terms of um, you know, being te- tempted to do certain things, because every day we're tempted. This is about trials. It's the same Greek word. So he reads, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those good debtors. <laughs> yeah. And do not lead us into trial, but deliver us from evil. So Jesus says, like, you don't lead us into trials, but deliver us. So we can pray as Christians, Lord, don't bring this upon me. Don't let me face this. I don't want to go through that. We can pray those things. And God's in favor of that. Jesus taught his disciples, you can pray for those things. And what we learn from here is if we walk in obedience, he actually can answer those prayers and alleviate us from things that we're going to face. However, we have to recognize that there are times when the Lord may, may let us walk through the trial. He may say, you know what? I know you've prayed, but I'm going to make you go through this one. Because the same word for trial is also used in James 1, 2, and 4. And he says this, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. So I can pray to be relieved from trials and the Lord may let me escape from them. At the same time, he may let us go through them because he wants our faith to be perfected. There's something immature about us that he wants us to become mature in. There's something incomplete in us in terms of holiness that he wants us to become holy in. And he says, if you go through that thing, you'll be lacking in anything. And if I were to talk to you, in fact, I have talked to you, and I look at the change in your life over the last nine years of the church plant and how you've matured, you didn't just mature because your life was rosy and peachy. You matured because we had to work through things together, marital problems, parenting problems, financial problems, unforgiveness issues, Anger. We work through all these things with one another. And now you, you are stronger and more committed to Christ because you actually went through it. And so this is really amazing. You can pray for them and the Lord can deliver. But if you go through them, you're not loved any less. He's just allowing you because he knows it's good for your character. There's something you need to learn. James 1.12, blessed is a believer who perseveres in trial. Again, the same Greek word is 
temptation in, in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord had a command for them then in verse 11. He said, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. We've seen this reference to crown before in Smyrna in verse 10. Basically, it's a reference to the victor's crown. The victor's crown was what an athlete would get at the Olympic Games if they won the discus or you know, a wrestling match. He got the gold medal. So in, and in that context and in this context, it's a picture of eternal life. It's a picture of standing victorious with Jesus. Uh, very clear in James 1.12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So it's, again, it's a picture of victory standing with the Lord. So again, it's, um, it's pretty, pretty neat how if, if these Philadelphians being loyal to him were going to receive this. And so he wanted them to continue to hold fast to what they have. And what's neat about this too, they didn't have to do any more than they were doing. He didn't say, you got to do more. He says, you're already doing enough. You're doing enough to get this crown because you've kept my word, you have little power, and you've not denied my name. So if, if they stay the same, they're, the Lord's super proud of them. They just have to maintain and, and hold fast to what they have. So I think there's a massive lesson in here, though, for us to learn. We see this idea, then, of eternal life having two, two aspects to it, two, two contributors in terms of how this looks. We have God and his part. God says, I'm going to open the keys to heaven that no one can shut. Like, no one's going to stop my plan of salvation from going forward. You can't undo the cross. You can't undo the way to eternal life. I hold the keys. But you have a part to play. You're saved by grace. You are forgiven. There's an initial commitment to him, and you're, you receive forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. But then there's a part on our part to play, which is obedience to him. And he says, if you walk in obedience, you'll, re you'll receive that crown. But if these Philadelphians turn and start denying his name, start not walking in obedience, they will lose that crown. It says it right, that's, that's the implication, isn't it? Hold fast so that no one will take your crown. It has to mean then if they don't hold fast, someone will take their crown. And so God is, is we start by, by what he did in the cross. We have a part to play in how we walk in relation to him. And so then he calls them to conquer in verse 13, 12 and 13. He says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. The first thing he promises him is to make them a pillar in his temple. Now, this is really important. The temple here is merely symbolic. It's merely symbolic. Because in Revelation 21, in verse 22, let me read this to you. 21, 22, I saw no temple in the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. So in heaven, when heaven's on earth, in, the, in this, like, this new city, there's no temple. So in Revelation 21, there's no temple. 
but yet he calls his pillars in the temple here. So again, he's speaking purely metaphorical to give us a picture of what this looks like. So again, what are pillars? They're necessary for structural integrity of a building. They hold up the roof, take the pillar out, it collapses. Remember Philistines with Samson? Hands in the pillar, crushed the pillars, and the whole thing came tumbling down and killed everybody in it. So they're, 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 they're strong, they're sturdy, they're necessary, right? And he says, if you continue to obey me and to love me and to live for me, I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. It's a, it's a position of sturdiness and, and like being foundational to heaven. And perhaps he's playing on the Philadelphian history. They're living in a culture with aftershocks, constant repairs of pillars and infrastructure that's crumbling in this world. And he's saying, you continue to hold fast to my name and you'll be a pillar in heaven, unshakable, unmovable, not like the pillars in Philadelphia that crack and crumble. Pretty cool, uh, pretty cool um, word from the Lord. The second thing he called, gives them is a new name. Now, he, three times he mentions new name, new name, new name. But this all points to the fact that their identity is with Christ and that, belong, and that they belong to him. In Revelation 22, in verse 3, Jesus says this. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and they will no longer be any night, and uh, they will no, not have the need of light for a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them. So again, the key thing is the name of the Lord will be on their foreheads because um, this is what it's going to be, a picture of what it's going to be like in glory. And so he, here he promises to put a new name on them, his name on them, if they continue to persevere. And we know the excitements of, of that, you know, like I think of like the, you know, those of you who watch the NBA or NHL drafts, right? You see these guys sitting in the stands and they're, they know that they might be getting drafted to a team. And, you know, the Edmonton Oilers say the number one draft pick for the Edmonton Oilers is Jesse Renyard. <laughs> and Jesse Renyard comes up there, takes the new name of the Oilers, right? Takes the, puts the jersey on, Renyard, number one. <laughs> and he's pumped and everyone's excited. He's got a new name. And the Lord is saying, you know what? You persevere. I'm going to put my name on you. You're going to get a new name. That's a picture of just incredible uh, relationship with him and an intimacy with him that's going to be given to those who hold fast. You may be of little strength, little power. You may be mocked. You may be hated, maybe persecuted, but you're mine. So what do we learn from this sermon today? Although our entrance into eternal life is fully dependent on Jesus, initially opening that door to us, we need to walk in obedience to him to ensure we attain it. Jesus opens the door to salvation, but he says, you walk in obedience to me to ensure you attain it. That's why he says, hold fast, to what, um, hold fast so that no one can take your crown. This is the message to the Philadelphians. It's been the message to every church up until this point. Second lesson you can take from here. 
As believers, we need to be prepared for and expect that rejection and persecution will eventually come to us when we choose to follow the Lord. I mean, he says here, you've, you've not denied my name, which means they would have put in, put in positions to do so. You've obeyed my word, which means they were threatened not, to, or sort of tempted not to. And this, the, this Jewish synagogue are really on these people. And so, again, we need to expect that because we follow him, that things will eventually come upon us. It may even come from religious groups that claim to know God. But here's what I love about this one in relation to it. When we walk in obedience to the Lord, there may be times when God may protect us from undergoing trials. He allowed these people, because of their obedience to him, to not undergo this severe testing that was going to come upon the Roman world. And so when we walk in relation to him, he may do the same thing for us. I don't, the hard thing for me to know is always when he does that and when he lets us go through it. It's, I don't, that's a... That's between you and the Lord, but he can do it, and that's a pretty neat lesson to learn. Oh, I should also say it's okay to pray that uh, we get out of things and don't have to face things. That's what the Lord's Prayer is. But if you have to go through something, know that it's going to test your faith and bring, bring a maturity in you that normally wouldn't be there. Four, as believers, even though there's nothing wrong with desiring justice, and at times even pursuing it, Ultimately, we need to leave the fulfillment of its timing in God's hands. He says here to the people, you know, I'm going to make them doubt, bow down at your feet. He says to Israel, you know, thousand or yeah, about a, yeah, like 600 years earlier, or whatever it was, I'm going to make uh, these nations bow down at your feet. He may do things like that in our lifetime, but he does say this, leave vengeance in my hand. Do not take revenge. It's going to come in my timing. Just trust me with it. And finally, I left this to the end. It's my favorite lesson. Regardless of the size of a church, it can have a powerful testimony to the unbelieving world around it. Right? You have little power. Genesis House, you have little power, but you can still be a powerful testimony to the world around you. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word, and I know it's uh, challenging to us. And you're constantly challenging me, Lord, and it's hard to always to articulate uh, how you operate in relationships and what theology is and so on. But I just pray, God, that whatever, wherever we're at and where we walked in here today, that your spirit has spoken to us in a new way and that we will be strengthened by it and continue to love you. And we thank you for your grace. It's massive. I mean, you probably were watching these churches in, in, in Asia Minor potentially sitting for a year or two or three and giving ample time to repent and nothing. But the message through John was, listen, guys, you need to wisen up to my ways. I don't know if people in here today are walking in sin and have hidden it, but may this be a, a call to you for repentance and, and for your grace to overflow every aspect of their lives. Thank you that you're abounding in grace and that you love us unconditionally. But also, if we have any stubbornness in our hearts, that we'd repent it to you now and, and come clean, Lord knowing that you'll forgive us right on the spot. So yeah, thank you for your word, how it teaches us, how it challenges us. And we look forward to next week as we finalize the last church, um, Laodicea, and the things we learn from them. In Christ's name, amen.